not everyone has to have the ultimate business acumen or everyone has the ultimate passion. We're all ourselves and we want diversity and we want a diverse workforce. But is there just something that's extra about that person? Go back to, we're talking about competing. You throw them in a pool, they're going to swim to the other side faster than the other person. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration about how hard it is both personally and professionally to build history-making companies. Enjoy. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on this show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out. There are companies in the KP portfolio that I would have dreamed of working for as an operator. Let's see if we can't find your next great career move. When do you guys think you're going to open the office? We're starting literally right now. We have our London office opening up in just a couple of weeks. We have our Amsterdam office following that. Yeah. And then our Denver office on the 1st of March. We're very excited about that. And then after that, we'll be opening up our Bay Area and other offices throughout March and into April. Well, I'm stoked to have you in this office. Is it awkward considering that you are the Zoom CRO that I insisted on doing this in person? Your team and I had a quick back and forth. I wouldn't say it was a, a long drawn out fight by any means, but there was a back and forth of, hey, we might want to do this remote. And I said, I understand, especially from your perspective, but it's much, much better in person. Anyway, I appreciate you doing this. Is it awkward to make that ask from you all? You know, I'm not used to seeing real humans that are, you know, right across from me. No, this is great. We definitely love using Zoom, of course, and we use it all the time, but human interaction is great in the live. And so we're happy to have both. And with the size of this table, it's like we're social distanced anyway. We're in the Kleiner office. It's a nice day in Menlo Park as it tends to be. The table is big, maybe too big. It's pretty big. It's, just, it's enough for the two of us. Let's put it that way. Well, anyway, it's a pleasure to have you. I start all of these episodes the same way. I will read your background to you. I will screw up. When I do, you tell me. We'll go from there. I will say your background, because you haven't done many jumps, I might be okay. I might not yeah, screw true. it up too bad. All right. So you went to Cal Poly slow. You got your BA in finance and marketing. Then you went to WebEx, not Cisco yet, just WebEx. Joined at like employee number 200-ish. You had a bag. You were selling, right? That's correct. And you were the RVP of corporate sales eventually. Took a few years to get there, I suspect. Had a couple good years in the field. Then I think the acquisition happened around 2007, right? Yep, yep. Then you became the VP of online sales for a year. Then you were the ops director of a U.S. small business sales for a year. Uh, convenient two-year mark for you while you were at Cisco. Then you went to Ring Central. You were basically the first rep. There was like 30 people yeah, in the US. I went to go, basically, there were some people offshore mm -hmm. and there was literally one person doing sales in the US. Mm -hmm. And I went as the head of sales, basically to kind of lead and grow the sales force. But it was someone in BD, me, and let's get it going. And so we you know, start hiring, start figuring it out. How much revenue were they doing at that point? Roughly about, they had some run rate, but I think about $10 million or so. And that was literally 100% online yeah. through like more of a mobile yeah. overlay product. And then some yeah. folks that were offshore selling in Manila that really were originally support, but yeah. then people were asking questions. Yeah. So facilitated online sales at the time. Makes sense. That company went through a public offering in 2013, spent another six years as a public company at that point. Then things get really, really interesting. In August of 2019, you join a company that we've all heard of called Zoom to be their CRO. Believe me, I'm going to have plenty of questions for you about all of this. Before I do, what was conversation like for Ryan at the dinner table wow. when he was growing up? Yeah, the dinner table. What did your folks talk about? You know, my parents were divorced when I was growing up. And so I had kind of step parents on both sides. And, you know, I saw, you know, both my, I live with my mom and saw my dad during the week, one day a week, we'd play tennis, we'd go out to dinner and do something. Um, and then every other weekend thinking about dinner tables, you know, there's definitely what they did at work, those types of things. I can't say it was like heavy business conversation. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily the thing at my house. Different conversations at the different tables. 
different conversations at the different tables for sure. Probably with my dad, it was a little more eating yeah. out. At my mom's house, it was definitely a little bit more eating what was there, which yeah. usually wasn't always my favorite. <laughs> How old were you when they divorced? Third grade. Third grade. So I think I was in maybe preschool when my parents separated. Different tables, certainly different conversations, absolutely different meals. You know, when I go to dad's house, it was Pop-Tarts for breakfast, Subway for dinner, maybe Baja Fresh, watch whatever movies I wanted at night. And then at mom's house, it was a very different experience. And I think the dinner table conversations were certainly very different. Also spent, I think, a day, maybe two days with dad. Used to commute down from San Bruno to Los Altos. And I would go to school there, get dropped off Monday, and then spend the week with my mother. Sounds familiar, right? That switch. And, you know, probably more than even the two houses. And I think about it now as an only child. You know, I think about it in today's world versus then. So I have three kids. Yeah. And and there was nothing. I was a happy kid growing up. Life yeah. was good. I have nothing to complain about. My parents are great people. But probably the one thing is having a brother and a sister. And I did through step parents, through my stepdad, have a stepbrother and stepsister, but they lived in a different state. So outside of kind of like a summer when I was 16 or so where we kind of lived together, it wasn't like I was going to school, waking up with the brothers and sisters. And, you know, that was probably one of my things. You kind of watch your own childhood and you say, what's going to be different? I'm not just having one kid. Um, and that was yeah. one of my things is definitely going to have and been really blessed to have three um, incredible, amazing and crazy at the same time kids. And there's definitely a level of chaos in my house today that probably didn't exist in my house when I was a kid. And even now it's so different because they're so connected. You know, they have each other, but let's be honest, they also have multiple screens and things and social media and video games and just all these things that, you know, we had pieces of it, but not in a way, you know, when I was a kid, you wanted to call your friend, you called, you had to talk to their mom on like the kitchen phone, <laughs> yeah. like I'm aging myself, but we got a little older and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, at least you could take the cordless in your room and have a private conversation, Yeah, but a little different than today. I also grew up an only child, now have a stepbrother, half brother, whatever it is through my mom's remarriage. He's young, he's in like high school, I guess. And I also feel the exact same way, which is that when I have kids, I don't want just one. And it has nothing to do if I was honestly reflecting on it with me being unhappy, but there is some order that I find in that chaos. I like the idea of a lot of things happening. I don't know why that is, but I like the idea of just a bunch of things all at once, all somewhat disorganized, but also organized. Well, then you'd like coming to my house today. (laughs) We, get, we got a lot of that. Um, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of chaos. We all get somewhere, but there's definitely a fun way to get there. When I was growing up, one of the blessings that I thought of having separated parents was that I learned very different lessons from different people. And maybe I'm completely wrong. You tell me. But I think when you're co-parenting, often there's more of a meeting of the minds where maybe you disagree and then come to a consensus and then that's whatever thing you're teaching your kid or whatever it is. It's not like that in separated households, literally both geographically and because you're not in the same spot and you're different places, whatever. And so I was parented very, very differently. And on the one hand, my my mother was pretty strict growing up. Grades were very important. And on the other hand, my dad wasn't, to put it lightly. And he gave me a sense of adventure and spontaneity and a few other things. Did you feel that way? Yeah, no, there were definitely differences. Um, This must be the mother thing. My mom was definitely school and grades. And it wasn't like my dad wasn't. My time was probably more free with him. And partially my friends that I grew up with were around my mom's house. And so my dad only lived 20, 30 miles away. But like when I was there in his neighborhood, it wasn't like my friend set was, you know, the kids I was going to school with, the people I was playing sports with were right there. So in a weird way, I almost spent more time with him in that sense, in a one-on-one interaction, you know, whether it be watching a movie or going to do something with sports or going to an event, just because you were more there on that solo time where sometimes your parents, you're there, but you're not there. Meaning you're not the entertainment, you're kind of just there watching it. But I will say, you know, I have to admit, even in my house today, we're probably two strong-minded people in both great, amazing ways. So even our kids will probably say, you know, what does mom do for you versus what is dad? And there's definitely some different lessons and different things. And we come together, we compromise and we, we, we line to raise them. But the reality of it is we definitely, I can't say we're, you know, it's a hundred percent. This is how it is. And, you know, and then we go to the kids in front. Well, I guess we have more in common than we thought. I feel the exact same way growing up. It was 
my friends were here in the South Bay. When I was in San Bruno, that was a world apart. Like my friends didn't go up there. So it was me and dad. Whether that was going to movie theaters and like sneaking into three in a row so that we could fill up our Sunday or watching football or playing video games or going to storage units or whatever crazy thing we were doing that day, I was just spending time with my dad. That was the activity. And in some ways, it's kind of cool to have that. And he was my idol. I used to make up stories when we were driving up the peninsula because I wanted to engage him. You know, like I just wanted to engage him. Like he was my guy. Anyway, I hope you can still have that without divorced parents, but I, I certainly look back on that fondly at times. No, for sure. And I'm hoping for my kids. And I even had that with some, like one of my grandparents on one side where you just kind of, you looked up to how they carried themselves, the things that they did in life, the work that they did, those types of things. Dude, I heard you had a pretty epic first job, maybe first sales job talking about books. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> by the way, this came up from like four people that they said, you have to ask Ryan about the books. Sort of a long story. So be careful. I mean, I'd say my first my first sales job was probably selling enough tickets to go to sixth grade camp if I really peel it back and always was selling something when I was a little bit older, like 13, 14 years old. I was like, got licenses from tops and upper deck and was literally buying baseball cards, like wholesale from these companies and then reselling them at card shows on the weekend. Then I was like working at the baseball card shop in town. You know, then I went to Cal Poly, as you mentioned, I was selling ads in the school newspaper. So there's always been some sense of selling or kind of, you know, being out there with people and not finding a way to make money when I was fairly young. But the book thing, there's a company called Southwestern and it sounds crazy, but they've literally been doing this since like 1880 something. So originally there was more of a religious bent. There was Bibles and things like that. It's not that at all today. It's, you know, all educational and they recruit kids across campuses. And there I was, you know, a freshman at Cal Poly and someone who's like one of my best friends in life right now lives here in Morgan Hill. Great, amazing person. Brad Ludwith calls me because I was on a, I'm Jewish and background and I was on a list to attend something. I never really went, but I called once to this club. He happened to know the president of Hillel and like somehow calls me, convinces me to come listen and learn. And I don't even remember why I went, but I went and I'm in a room and they're telling me about this adventure I can have in the summer. And let me tell you that it was definitely an adventure and kids go for different reasons. For me, there was probably a sense of independence. There was a sense of making money and literally kids like you prepare for it during the school year. Day finals ends, you go the next day and you start driving to Nashville, Tennessee, and that's like sales school. And there's like 13 weeks of sales school that are happening. So you drive from California to Nashville. And when I say drive, let me rephrase that. You drive straight with students rotating driving. I mean, so it's kind of like we got 24 hours. We're going to be in Nashville. Let's go. And like, okay, you sleep, you drive, you sleep, you drive. And there's a caravan of maybe there's four cars, five cars and 20 ish kids. And there's these caravans going and kids are going to Nashville for this week of sales school training. And let's say you go to BYU, you get out in May. At Cal Poly, we were on the quarter system. So we'd get out later in June. And so Cal Poly, Santa Barbara, Santa Clara, Stanford, we're kind of on the same school system. And so yeah. we would go together um, along with kids that happen to be from Washington State University. And you go there. So 4,000 kids at the time would do this across 4, the nation. 4,000? Yeah. Um, not all there. Over there, just think about all these different weeks yeah. arriving. And then you go out to territory and I lived in California. So I grew up in Southern California, like, you know, Camarillo actually where I went to high school, San Fernando Valley and Connecticut was my first summer. I lived in New York. I've lived in Wisconsin. I lived in Pennsylvania. Well, these were summer after summer. Yes. So I, and this is selling books. When I say selling books, you're literally knocking on doors 90 hours a week. No BS, 90 hours a week. I mean, you're knocking on the door Five at 8 a.m. You're doing it until nine. No, Saturdays too. And then Sunday is the greatest day in life. Like Sunday, you, you just, you might be in New York and you're at the, you're going to the Broadway play. I mean, as long as you're not knocking on doors, honestly, you could be staring at grass growing on the park and you'd be happy, but you're doing this. And so first I made a lot of money. I mean, back then, and I was making, you were making good money, like 20, $30,000 plus in a summer. I was pretty good at it. Dude, so that's pretty good. Average kids, you know, then probably were making five to $7,000 in the summer, give or take. And for me, there's probably a few things. I mean, one is even growing up, I thought I knew everybody in my town. I was a fairly social person. But what I realized is you kind of know the people like one grade above you and one grade below you. But you really don't know everybody in your town. 
And when you sell books, let me tell you, you go to a town and you know everybody doing in the town. You start selling the soccer team. You get a principal to school. You're leveraging names. You literally go to the nicest house on the hill and honestly, the poorest house in the town. And you're engaging with people and you see parents raising their kids. You're sitting at dinner tables. You're, you know, you're on porches, mom and dad's letting you in, not letting you in people treating you well, people not treating you well. And you're out there by yourself. And back then there's no cell phone. I mean, you'd have like a voicemail that you could go get back. If you remember that and literally you're out there. And then the other part is you're living in someone's house. And so typically it would be someone like that had kids, has a nice size house and their kids are gone and they're empty nesters and you're living in their basement, but you're not there. When you say living, meaning you're living there before 7 a.m. in the morning, you're living there after nine to 10 ish at night and you're living there a little bit on Sunday, but really it's more of a place to sleep, a place to shower, to quickly eat late at night. And it's an experience and you just, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn about hard work. You learn about persistence. The other part is, you know, it's one thing to do it once, but when you know what it is, like you do it again, 30% plus of the people quit within three weeks of the first First, gig. You got it. And then it's one thing to come back again. And then once you come back, you're kind of a leader automatically, at least some level leader. Like you can't complain. There's a thing that I even keep from then called puke up, you know, don't throw up down, throw up, up, like bring it up the hierarchy. If you think about that way and how to kind of motivate people. And, you know, the opportunity I had is there I was 20 years old and, you know, there was about 60 kids kind of in this group that we take over, let's say an area in New York, New Jersey, and you're helping set their territories. You're helping pick them up on the weekend, honestly, emotionally to be able to do it again for another week and to set goals and to help achieve those goals. And so just crazy experience. But also something that like you wake up and you go, how did I do that? How many summers did you do that? I actually did it for five summers. So you did it your freshman, sophomore, junior. And even after I graduated, just because. And then you did it for one last rodeo. I did it for one last rodeo. And what kind of books were you selling? (laughs) There were a couple children's books and then study guides. Think encyclopedias, but there's only two to three. But it was almost like where encyclopedias are for reports. And, you, you know, how often do you really have a report in school? You have tests and quizzes all the time. Think of like almost not cheat sheets, but for education, like how can mom and dads help their kids with math? What are all the facts you need to know about something? This is before the internet. Yeah. Um, they still do it today, which is crazy. Now COVID's calmed it down. They do more with technology, but they still have books and technology. And literally it hasn't been the last couple of summers because of COVID, but a couple of summers ago, kids from Estonia, kids from Moldova were living in my five people were living in my basement, selling around my basement. neighborhood. Exact doing this exact program, having even a different experience because they're literally, you know, as I mentioned from other places across the world here living in the U.S. and doing that for the summer. To get to, let's call it 10K a month of what you're making, how many books are you selling? Yeah, I don't know. If there's different sizes and depending on what you like, sell. Like is it a book a day? No, more than that. I mean, think about depending if you sell little things or big things, but you're probably talking three to five customers a day, like 10 if you're doing on a Saturday. Maybe. And how many houses are you knocking on? Well, the goal was 30 demos a day. I wasn't the best approacher. And so there, like that wasn't my favorite part where approaching scene down. I was pretty good that if I sat down, I was going to get a deal. And so some people were all about like they can approach and get in every time. And then some other people, my wife actually went to Stanford here in the Bay Area. We actually met on an incentive trip related to this. And she actually did it too. And she was she can get in every door. And I was the one that was more like, we're probably a perfect combination. Get in the door. We're going to get a sale before we leave kind of thing. Oh, that is insane. I mean, that is so cool. I say insane and like, a, that is amazing. Do you know Kelly Wright? Do you know who that is? Uh, yeah, I do. Of course. Kelly Breslin, right? Yes. I know her well. In fact, a gong right now. Yes, you probably talked to her. Yep. Um, Tableau before that. Yes. Uh, world, she was actually the record setter at one point at this exact job I'm talking about. Wait, I was going to say she sold books. It was in the same program. She did. And not only that, this is it's even smaller world. She set the company record before I joined the company. She's just a couple years older than me. She was doing the program and she went to Stanford. My wife went to Stanford and Kelly Breslin or Kelly Wright recruited my wife to do this job. And so we definitely all know each other. And ironically, my wife, like she was like one of the top first years. Imagine like guides and roll ups. And she was like number one in California, one of the top, you know, five people in the country her first year. And she was living with Kelly, setting the company record. 
And my wife didn't think she was doing well because Kelly would come home and whatever she did, she did four times as much. And yet she was like the best for her, what she was doing as a rookie. That even shows you something about belief barriers, right? Like when you see somebody else doing it, you compare yourself to them and you set expectations in any other house. My wife would have been like the superstar, but she wasn't at the time when she was living with Kelly that summer. They're both Kelly's ironic. I can't believe that because I was just going to say that that's a really random similarity that you and Kelly both sold books. For the audience listening, this is Kelly, the now president of Gong, formerly employee number seven or eight of Tableau, taking it through a public company. It must be the training program. You That's, know, right. For, That's right. That's um, right. And what you see is people go for different reasons. To be honest, there were people that went for adventure. Why did you keep going back? Was it the money? Were you like, this is good? It was partially the money. Like, because like 30 grand, I mean, adju- like in, adjusted for now, that's all like, that would be like 50 plus grand a summer. Those that did well made a lot. So definitely the money was a part of it, you know, helping pay for school and other things, having the money. There was a sense of commitment all the time. You're recruiting people. They're recruiting you. At one point, once you stop, it's like, how did I do that? And you meet people. You don't have to see that often, but when you see them, there's just a common bond. And because you did something that was really intense, you probably did it at a time in your lives that you're pretty impressionable. And you went through something really hard, you know, pretty extreme together. That's like a shared experience. So I have lots of amazing friends throughout the years that you don't see. And then all of a sudden you can see, but there's just a connection. There's this shared experience. Everyone got something different out of it. But the people that did it in general, there was something extra. They wanted something, whatever it is. They all have their own reasoning. Yeah. But there's something in there. Would you encourage your kids to do it? You know, they're not excited about it. Um, they laugh because, again, we've had kids a couple summers living in they our basement. So they yeah, see yeah. I've even set like my son and a daughter for like a half day, like go out there and do it with them. Like I think one or two of them would do really well at it. We'll see. But I would encourage it. And it's hard because even as a parent, like you're not at your Fourth of July picnic. You're not at your boyfriend, girlfriend. You're not maybe doing some of your summer sports. I mean, so there are sacrifices. There's no days off. You're really working. You come back and you're rolling into the school year. So it, it's intense to say the least. Wow. That's amazing. I hear that you are, to put it lightly, pretty competitive. Is that true? I like to compete. I like to win, but honestly, even more than winning sometimes, I definitely like to compete. Like the the action, it's fun. Yeah. It reminds me of me. I'll compete in anything. Same thing. Anything. Throw a rocket near the window. Who can get closer? It's Let's like, see. It's like the, you see the Michael Jordan documentary when they're like flicking quarters. And Literally. <laughs> yeah. Where do you think that comes from? You know, it's funny. My parents aren't like that. And so it's hard to say, you know, my grandfather, maybe a little bit more, one of them. I have a daughter in ninth grade, a son in seventh grade, another son in fourth grade. And my boys are a bit more like that. I mean, game night is intense at our house. Everyone comes to play. Even my seventh grade son, like I see the competitive side and it's like me on steroids. It's almost weird to watch. Um, He's hyper, hyper competitive. But all my kids, we could be playing Uno and it's like to the death. People like to win and want to win. And in the end, we're all friends again. But, you know, we've had game nights with some friends where we've had almost like family game night where you play like multiple games. Kids will go against kids, parents against kids. It's kind of fun a few times, but it's also after like you're almost tired. Yeah. Like you're emotionally spent (laughs) just because you can feel the intensity about it all. Okay, so I will not be the parent who lets their kids win. I can't do it. Are you? I don't know if it's good or bad for them, but just like selfishly speaking, I've never been able to do that. I am definitely not that person. So I'm aligned with you in that sense. You know, once in a while, I might feel bad. I'll be nice. And what's hard now is my kids are getting bigger. They're smarter. I mean, you know, they're getting more athletic. I still have definitely some size and structure on some of my kids in certain places, but I can see that the days of me winning are ending. You know, in fact, my friend and I were playing spike ball the other day with two of my, and I'm like, they beat us. And it's just like, how did that just happen? Yeah. Like my daughter plays word hunt. You know, it's a texting phone game. I'm pretty quick. She's definitely faster than me. And I'm like, how is she doing this? What is happening? And so I definitely don't let them win. And I'd love to say I always win, but that's definitely not the truth either. I played Settlers of Catan and I say played in past tense with my friends a lot. And at some point, it actually ruined some friendships. I don't know if you've ever played Settlers of Catan. It's like like the most popular board game ever. And there's a lot of like trading and bartering that goes on. There's a lot of like allegiances that are formed. And ultimately, there's only one winner, which is how it should be. And it literally would 
devolve into screaming matches because all of my friends are as competitive as I am. And so we stopped playing. We completely stopped playing because it was so intense. So anyway, maybe there is a downside to a little no, bit. No, and even I'll tell you, this is our current is um, Wordle, which I found late, only a couple of weeks ago. And my fourth grader son, Trey, he's somehow into it. And I don't even know how, but somehow he, he's the one that found it, of course, on TikTok or something. And I wake up at some point earlier or in the middle of the night or something and I'll like, okay, I'll do my work. Like, and then literally this morning I see my son for a second. What instead of good morning, Hey dad, what's up? How many did it take you? Because he hasn't done it yet. And him and my wife are going to try to beat me. Now it takes two brains for them. They team up and my wife uses pen and paper, which I don't do, but they definitely, that's how the morning starts. Competition runs deep. It runs deep in the family. I love it. I've also heard that you're a student of business. What does that mean? I like business is probably the way I would say it, or I'm naturally curious. And so for some university or something like that, what I mean is like, I just find business intrinsically interesting. If I had more free time, like what I, I used to be reading like Inc. Magazine or Business 2.0 when that came out. And that was before blogs and the internet and you had everything in your hand. But I've always liked it, like somehow intrinsically how people do stuff, how it works, leadership, people, even psychology, like that's been interesting to me. And so, you know, I found myself enjoying like figuring out things, solving problems. It stimulates me, stimulates my mind and, you know, gets me excited. Dude, I feel the same way. In fact, I went on this thing where I was like reading so many business books sequentially that I was like, I got to read some fiction, get like one layer below my subconscious or whatever. And then I never enjoyed books as much as like Shoe Dog or Ride of a Lifetime or even like Andre Agassi's autobiography. Just I can't I can't get enough of it. And I have a recommendation for you and then we can keep going. There's a podcast called Acquired that I was listening to actually on the way down here. And they are three plus hour episodes that do extreme deep dives on the full anatomy of a business start to finish. I was listening to Peloton on the way here and they've done Disney and they've done some really amazing businesses. So you might find it interesting. That's cool. Well, if I'm not listening to Grit, I guess I have to go to Acquired. I got to find the three hours and even Masterclass recently. Like, you know, I was listening to like Michael Eisner's Masterclasses recently. Those short blocks are almost better. Like I'm doing something else. So I got five minutes, 20 minutes, like, you know, trying to bring it in these small blocks and try to almost be entertained and listen and learn. Okay. So You went to WebEx as employee 200-ish, came in right before the IPO, stayed through the acquisition, had a couple more years there. I remember WebEx. You don't have to say this, but I will. Like, how do I put this? The teleconferencing industry has come a long way since I remember WebEx to the point where nobody would even go on video during the WebEx days. WebEx was really a phone bridging solution. Did they even have a video? Did they have a video? There was video, but not like, not as good as Zoom is today. And then even then the document sharing was kind of a core focus of what that was. Definitely um, the internet and technology have come a long way. What I found interesting is you took like three different jobs. When I say three different jobs, these weren't sales manager, RVP, EVP. This was sales ops and some other different types of roles. What was the worst day that you had at WebEx? I'll tell you a funny story to get you there. In between selling books and WebEx, I actually sold insurance for two years. And when I was done selling books, because to think of all the people that are selling there and the track records, there's a bunch of companies that recruit the heck out of those kids. And most of those companies, even the people that sold books that are running it at 40 years old, 50 years old, they all did the same thing 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So they stayed with it the whole time. And then people split off and started companies and they recruit these kids. So I went to this company selling insurance you know, residual income, freedom and flexibility, lifestyle, things that all sound really romantic sometimes, but I was also you know early 20s and honestly not what I needed at the time. I happened to be rookie of the year my first year. I was number three in the company, like a couple hundred people the second year and doing really well. And I was kind of their poster person. I was probably 10 to 20 years younger than almost everybody in the company. And I was their poster person of someone young coming in and doing this job. And here you go. It was literally 2000 and I'm in the Bay Area, you know, dot com is just kind of happening, happened. And I'm just I've intrinsically, like I said, I love business and everybody I went to Cal Poly and the school business with and I was the vice president. Like they're just all doing some check job or some business job. 
and I'm reading it, but not doing it. And I could do my job pretty easily and pretty well, but I wasn't learning and I honestly wasn't growing at the rate I expected to. And financially it was a good thing, but I realized that wasn't for me. And so I went and I um, decided I'm going to do something. I made a list. And back then, like the companies couldn't be public, you know, like what was my list? And there had to be startups. And I'm trying to remember, it's like, tell me was on the list and WebEx. And so WebEx, ironically, my wife happened to be doing some like literally dot com dot mom type jobs in business development. And one of her companies was one of the early customers of WebEx back in 1999. And she had to practice her demo. And so she was practicing remotely with me. And I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. Like, what is this? How's using this WebEx. Work? Using WebEx. Mm-hmm. And literally, she's practicing her demo. So it makes my list. And so I'm like, okay, I, I work with the company, insurance company. I'm talking to the president. I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. Like, let's do a healthy transition. I'm going into tech. Let's go do something. So go end up interviewing at WebEx with Dave Berman, who you might know, who has uh, crossed a lot of people's lives here. Great person. And I go in. I go meet the HR person. And I get screened. And I was just like, are you kidding me? And I'm in my car and I'm like, well, how about Dave? Well, you know, he's uh, got something, you know, sorry, he's going to be busy. Like, da, 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 da. like, couldn't get the meeting. I came in for an interview, did one with HR. And then I never met the sales leaders or the person I knew they I needed to meet and got screened basically. Yeah. And I'm just in my car like, oh my God, like what just happened? Are they crazy? I know not to be humble, but I called Dave a day later. I cold call him. And I'm like, look, you don't know who I am. And Dave is who for the context of the story? Dave runs the sales. He ended up being the president of WebEx and other things and ran core sales, the head of the group. And I'm just like, hey, you don't know who I am, but I'm going to be honest, I got screened and I just want to let you guys know you made the biggest mistake. And so we need to talk. I need to come in and we need to meet. And if you know Dave, that's definitely, come on in. Anyway, I ended up getting the job, ended up selling for a fairly short period of time in all truth, quickly promoted to a manager, leading a team quickly kind of ran the office. And just, you know, one thing that kept me there is literally every two years, my job changed. And, you know, for a couple of years, I ran sales operations. I call that kind of my working MBA. Like the company was maybe about a hundred million going to 250 million. And it was everything from what do we do for club to what are we doing in the systems and what should it be? And how are we going to take orders to, can you fly to Europe and tell us if the GM's any good? I mean, it was a pretty broad (laughs) and there was me and another great guy, Ted Gummerson, that were kind of running it. And it was like, whatever it is, the two of you just go get it done. You were a Swiss army life, like a chief of staff almost. Almost. Yes. Yeah. And that was, you know, working MBA, super hard work, tons of education interest. Um, And then there were some leadership changes. There was kind of a COO at the time that didn't quite work out. And then Dave kind of came back in and says, I need you to come back to sales. Can you come lead the office, you know, move up market more. And over time, just every couple of years, there was just something where, Hey, we're being challenged here. Can you go do this? Definitely some interesting times. And so were you stoked or pissed when the acquisition happened? You know, that sounds like a weird question because it was a three plus billion dollar acquisition. But sometimes when you're having a ride like that, a little bit of both. There was an excitement because something was happening. And, you know, at the time, you know, it sounds today, the dollars are just so different in some of these companies and valuations. But at the time it was so big. And ironically, you know, IBM was looking at us for quite a while and doing all the due diligence and doing all the work. And then literally at the last moment, Cisco came in and in eight days went from not being involved to like, we're going to do this. I'm like, oh, well, we didn't know you're for sale. If you're for sale, we're going to do that and came and did it. You know, in all truth, I respect Cisco, great company. You know, they do well. We definitely compete with them. But the reality of it is that just wasn't for me. <laughs> and so the but good the news is it, it got me off to go do something else in a yeah. sense. It helped me kind of go try new things and go do that. And it was two years on paper, but not even two years in reality. Totally. <laughs> and so there was about a year of being WebEx. And then there was a year of being Cisco. And again, you study in business school, very successful company. But I, at the time, you know, I like to... I wanted to lean on a company uh, building and watch it move a little bit. And unless you were John Chambers, that wasn't happening at Cisco. Yep. Which is an interesting input to the next decision that you make, which is to go to what at the time was a tiny company, RingCentral, like really, really small. And this story is amazing. In 10 years, you started out, you and one other guy, like you said, BD person in the US. It went from like zero to a hundred million of Revenue. Yeah. Wait, how much revenue did you do in 10 years? Yeah, yeah. So Ring Central today is over a billion dollars in revenue. And when I left, we hadn't hit a billion dollars revenue, but a billion dollar run rate. So we're on that track and 
was definitely That's crazy. It was definitely a crazy growth. You'd seen early and you'd seen scale. Why did you decide to do that early again? Was it because you were post-economic and you felt like you had a buffer financially? Yeah, no. Ironically, for a little while after WebEx or kind of, you know, in Cisco really at the time, I had a little period of time, about six months where I was off and I got to just do things. I, you know, I was playing basketball like three days a week. I was playing tennis at the gym. I was just, you know, anything I said no to over the years, I'm like, say yes. Oh, Warren Bunt's annual conference. Let's go do it. And so I was doing some of that. And for like three months, like, I don't even want to talk to anybody. No CEO, no VC, nothing. And I actually thought about buying a business. I kind of wanted to just run my own business. And it wasn't like high tech venture type business. It was just something that like, how do I have my own business? Most of them, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get bored probably pretty quickly, just knowing me. And then ironically, I started talking to different VCs and, you know, you know, I said, okay, I'm going to do tech. It was just too compelling not to. What I had done, the opportunities for me were too hard to ignore. And at the time, my wife and I had decided we're going to move out of the Bay Area. And so we were kind of like, where are we going to go? We are just having kids. Where are we going to like live the rest of our lives? And she's originally from Alaska. She had family now in Hawaii. My family's in Cal at the time they've actually moved in all kinds of places. They're in mainly in California. And so we're like, where are we going to go? But it can't be past Texas. Let's say, you know, drive the middle of the country. And we kind of had it down to like Boulder or Austin. And we were like back and forth for different reasons. At one point we decided in Austin, we were literally like looking at houses. I was meeting with Austin Ventures, talking to some CEOs out there, just talking, like seeing what the need was and literally was moving there. And then all of a sudden Ring Central came around and I was ignoring all these Bay Area companies just because they were Bay Area. And I'm like, nope, we're going to be gone. And so Ring Central at the time had an office here in the Bay Area and needed to open an office somewhere else. And ironically, years later, it ended up not being in Austin and ended up being in Denver. And I was going to go run the sales office and I was going to go open it up and be the head of sales for the company, but just go open an office, get it going and get it rolling. And different things led to different things. But a couple of things, you know, first off, when I got there, I was realized it was a smaller business than I thought. And you kind of had to be in headquarters, just some of the leadership and just how things were. And I also also realized I was a headquarters person. Like headquarters is where the action is sometimes, like depending on what you're looking for. That's where then, you know, when you're at a startup, the investors are coming in. That's where key customers are flying in. That's where things are happening. And because I like business, not just selling per se, I needed to be in headquarters. And so I kind of realized that wasn't going to work. And so originally part of why I took it was literally 100% on a mission that in three months, I'm going to be moving to Austin. It was literally 40 miles, 35 miles from my house, not too far, but like I skipped everything in between. Like, who cares? I'm going to be doing this. And almost, you know, nine years later, I was literally making the same drive in the office and a couple of times, but was literally making the same drive when I wasn't flying or traveling or, you know, doing something different for work. And so, you know, it is what it is in life. You try to plan and it works out. And part of it is, I don't know if it works out, you make it work. Not everything goes as planned and that's part of reality and we all deal with. But it's like, what do you make of it <laughs> at the end of the day? And now I look back and it's, you know, we have a house we love. Our kids are happy in their schools and our neighborhood. And we like to go to Bend, Oregon. It's kind of like our getaway place. And there's places I would have liked to live and maybe have moved over time. But the reality is you also get in your community. Your kids have friends and things are good. And so we're, we're still here. Let's put it that way. Do you think you're still an HQ person? I know there's a corporate answer that you're supposed to give, and I would love to hear how you feel about yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I do think I am, but it's like, what is HQ has changed because of COVID? You know, we're really careful about our employees and their health at Zoom, and we've been remote. And we've been remote for literally, will almost be two years yeah. in a, you know, another, in another month. Yeah. And so what was headquarters, what is headquarters, what will that be? You know, things are changing. But I also was not a work from home person. Ironically, I drove 35 miles, maybe it's 40 miles, whatever it was to Ring Central, depending where the buildings were for all those years. And then finally I go to Zoom, which is three miles from my house and I'm there and, you know, three quarters in, then we're home. <laughs> I've never been a work from home person. This yeah. wasn't me. I don't know. I just went in or I'm traveling with customers. I like being around people. Just like anything, you got to adjust. Um, and then you get used to it. Now, here we are on the other side. Now I got to get used to going back in. We'll be hybrid. We'll be flexible. But it is weird. And I think a lot of people are going through that right now. What is that? You know, and what is the future of work and what's that going to look like? Let's get to Zoom in a second. But I guess the the one thing that I keep going back to in my head is that you feel preordained for sales. Everything that you've done your entire life has been selling very successfully started with books. You're the best at that. 
Then you went to WebEx and then they made you a manager like very quickly. They had a crazy ride there. Take a shot on Ring Central. Have a crazy ride there. In all of those rides, which are about as good as they get until Zoom, did you ever think about leaving? Yeah, of course. Why? Over time, there's always like, you know, everyone, oh, the grass is greener and actively think about it versus actually leave or, you know, yeah. how serious do you get? And there were definitely times. And part of it is all these things were hard. And it's funny from the outside, it's always like, oh, look at that success. But the reality is from the inside, you're fighting, you're grinding, you're hitting your numbers on the last day of quarters, you're finding a way. And when you put it all together, it leads to success. You know, a story I've told before is even at Ring Central, I remember meeting with Vlad the first time, the CEO there. And I remember when I interviewed with him and he was asking about WebEx and the way he was asking. And it was kind of like WebEx was a decently known brand at the time. It was a successful acquisition and company. Wow, that must have been a ride. What was that like? If you play football, you know, it's not like a 50-yard pass. You maybe juke a defender, catch the ball and jogging backwards to the end zone. It's more like you're playing football and literally you're running the ball. And every time they give you the ball and you hit the middle and when you hit the middle, the defense is right there and they're tackling you. They're grabbing your feet. And all you're doing is just keeping your feet moving and moving. And literally you're falling down. You're getting tackled, but you're falling forward and falling forward and falling forward. But you know what? You do that 20, 30 plus times. You look up and you might be on the 10 yard line. You're in the red zone and you can see the end zone. You know, sometimes there might be this just instant success, but just in general, you know, the success that I've seen in my life or things that have worked, the companies I've been in, it's taken a lot of fighting, a lot of grinding, a lot of moving the change step by step. And in the end, they came out to look successful and have good outcomes and, you know, be good for their customers and good for employees and things like that. But it's not like, you know, this easy ride in any way. Using the football analogy, my favorite player is Marshawn Lynch. And uh, the reason he's my favorite player is because I think he's probably, statistically speaking, the in the top 1% of players ever, yards after first hit. After the he's first hit. He's definitely got that mentality. It's amazing to watch. But he's also like, he can barely move now. Like, he's pretty banged up, you know? So there's a, there's a cost to that, I suppose. That's going to be me in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you get to Zoom. This industry, man, has been very good to you. It kind of it, it is in a weird way. When I got to Zoom, it was almost like I've been preparing for this for the last exactly, 20 years. Exactly. Like, yeah. I think everyone's heard of Zoom, but maybe just a little business context. It was founded in 2011 by Eric. It has raised over $276 million in private funding across eight rounds. You know what was surprising to me as I was researching was Qualcomm did the Series A. That's definitely the best deal they've ever done, which is awesome. Sequoia did the Series D, maybe the growth round. MCAP did the C. Current market cap is $46 billion, if I'm not mistaken, as of today, mid-February of 2022. They brought you in. The irony is thick here, but they brought you in to scale the business. You came in August of 2019, so six, seven months before COVID. And the goal then was, we need to go scale the business. Let's bring in a guy that has scaled it before. Is that right? Yeah. A couple of things. You know, I had a lot of relationships. There was a lot of WebEx original. I'm Eric himself, Janine, Kelly, that were there at Zoom. Also at Ring Central, we OEM the product. And I was involved, of course, in that partnership and how we took it to market. And for me, there was a few things. You know, first, I was selling Zoom essentially, also at Ring Central. And the sentiment in the market was so great around customers. I also saw some where the world was going a little bit with video and voice and the importance of video and what that would be like in the future, kind of looking at that. And then I knew Eric could build great, innovative, easy to use products that people love. And I was really betting on that. And it was really a tough move. I wasn't, you know, when you talk about looking for things, I wasn't looking to go anywhere. I'd built a great team at Ring Central. There was runway ahead. And so I really wasn't leaving Ring Central. And it was hard for me to do emotionally because of the team I've built and people. It was, I was going to Zoom. And, you know, I was going for the experience and oh boy, I got that and then something. It's been amazing. Yeah. The way I say it is when people ask me, Jubin, what should I do? How do I know when to go? And generally I say you want to run to something, not from something. 1000%. And when you're getting pulled by that opportunity, that's a good signal that this is the right one rather than 
just constantly on the market yeah. thinking. I mean, there was, if there was another job, that was the one I wanted to do. And, you know, unfortunately you couldn't do two jobs. I thought, how do you do this? Like you, you can't. And it's been a wild ride and it was definitely to come help scale for the stages ahead. And we've seen, as you know, tremendous growth at Zoom in that time. Can I fess up to something? I am exhausted by being on video all the time. And so I only do calls. Sometimes those are Zoom calls. Sometimes those are cell calls. Do you feel the same way? Are you allowed to say this? You know. Two years in, are you tired of it a little? You know, I'll be honest. So there's a word that I need to use it, but I'll be fair. But some people say Zoom fatigue. And I laugh because I'm like, it's not Zoom fatigue. It's work fatigue. Okay. But also, isn't that, I was actually, I have that in my notes. Isn't that a good thing? That's like saying, hey, let's docu-sign something. Isn't it a good thing that they use that as the verb? It is. And to me, or I mean, the adjective or whatever. And to me, maybe it's being on video. You're definitely there. But video also makes you more connected. Yep. But, and we're doing a lot in technology and we have some ways to help around that. But the reality of it is it's not Zoom. It's that I have a meeting and then five minutes later, I have another meeting yes. and a minute later, I have another meeting. And so it's really the work and the intensity of the work sometimes that we're on fatigued. It's more about that than anything is what I've seen. I mean, we do have a variety of things like our Zoom apps, for instance. We work with things like Thrive Global. They literally have KP like- portfolio company, okay. baby. Did you know that? No, I did not. All right. Well, then you know. Well, and they have things, right? Like literally in one minute, you can do a reset. Yep. You could set things yes. for yourself. And so how do you have, even if it's a quick break, what does that look like? And for a lot of us, we were used to like shifting between the building and we're moving to the next meeting. Going to the fridge. And, now, the soda. and yep. now it's just different. And so people had to kind of think about how to reset. There's been amazing productivity, but like what do those resets look like? And what is that for people? All right. Can I fess up one more thing? I don't use Zoom backgrounds. I never have, ever. I don't use any backgrounds. And by the way, I've been traveling for a very long time in a bunch of different places. I always try and have whatever background is behind me, as long as it's not like the bathroom or something. I feel like there's something more humanizing about having my own background there rather than some wallpaper. What is your posture on this? You know, I'm dehumanized for sure because I, I have a lot of backgrounds. Part of it is we use it. I mean, I had a kickoff the other day and we had our theme and that's in the background. You know, there'll be holidays that we'll celebrate, yeah. changing it up, different work environments. You know, I'm meeting with a customer. We'll change the background to we're in their lobby, like you oh, know, at a cool. customer building. And so to be fair, like we have menus of backgrounds yeah, okay. and there is quite a bit, but we also have blur. I mean, I do have my wallpaper behind me and my, you know, glass window, but maybe my kids running around sometimes too. So I have background more than not, but it's like the ones that I choose or why I choose them sometimes, you know, depending on the situation. I happen to have an office. It wasn't, you know, set up perfectly for Zoom necessarily, but it's great. But a lot of people there, you know, that office is maybe the corner of their, their living bedroom. room yep. or sometimes their bedroom or their kitchen counter. And at one point when their kids were home from school and trying to give people just the flexibility so they felt comfortable to kind of work in the way they want to. And that's what we're about is kind of enabling people to do what they want. Okay, so you join. Six months later, COVID happens. It became the fifth most downloaded app worldwide, almost 500 million downloads. I don't want to rewrite history, but the business goes from 10 million to 300 million active users. I'm not going to say overnight, but it's about as close as overnight as it gets. 10 to 300 million active users. I remember, this is when I was like, things are getting crazy. There is another Zoom stock Zoom, the ticker is ZM. This is Z-O-O-M. And that stock went from $3 a share to 22 bucks a share in a month. And this stock had never had any public disclosures to the SEC, no finances. I mean, I don't know what that is, but it's like basically a meme stock. It was nothing stock. 7X. Because people were doing the wrong... That's when I was like, oh boy. One more stat and then we'll get into it. At the end of 2019... The business was doing run rate 160 million, if I'm not mistaken. By August of 2021, you have done your first billion dollar quarter. The last two quarters have been over a billion dollars in the quarter. So you're getting to like a $4 billion run rate business. That's our guidance. And you started two years before ending the year at 160 million. It was ending the year I joined around 620-ish, Okay, but it almost doubled from the year before. So before that was about 300 or so. That's crazy. Has any business changed that much ever like that? You know, Zoom was already a successful high growth company, but this was definitely intense um, to say the least. And, you know, it's funny just looking back because you like anything you get used to. I mean, 
there were definitely periods, I mean, adding capacity to make sure we're taking care of our customers, doing everything that we could every day. And even things like orders, like there was so much business at once that people had an instant need. Thank God we had some different channels, things like online globally, but even order processing, it's like your quarter end team comes in and they give it all and they're up till the end of the night, you know, at midnight, helping make sure things get done. But then it's quarter ends over or that weekend's over or maybe that week. And then they have kind of the next phase. But guess what? Then it happened the next week and the next week. And so, you know, I like to say um, we had a stretch. We definitely didn't break, but we had a stretch. You know, we weren't resourced to do what we need to do. Thank God we had an amazing architecture that Eric and, and the team had built um, for scalability that really allowed us to, to serve. I mean, that was oh, almost the most amazing thing was that most companies and most business could not have served their customers and that we were able to. And then you hire, you resource, you scale, you grow, you replan in their short term and long term. It, it is weird going back. And ironically, I'm. I'm watching morning show with one of my kids and you know, the show on Apple TV, we watched season one a long time ago. And then I think cause of COVID they didn't film or, and we're in season two towards the end in the show, they had a timeline. And so now they're in February, March, like it's in New York. They're just going home from their off. It's, it's just been eerie. And it's just the beginning of COVID like, Oh, there's this thing overseas. It's coming here. What's it going to be? And it's almost like mentally reliving some of this. And it's almost like a movie for a lot of us that, you know, a couple of years later, here we are. Is it crazy? It's really crazy. When I was reflecting on this conversation with you, we would have been pretty screwed without Zoom. I I believe that. Like, I'm not just saying that to butter you up. I can't imagine a world where we didn't have AWS to scale the infrastructure of companies like Zoom so that we could operate, so that we could function as a society. And then obviously there's things like DoorDash and all these things. Like, man, if this happened 10 years before, it would have been much uglier. By probably April, you and your team must have known what that pressure was. You could see the demand. Was that hard to balance this weird thing of, okay, our business is going to change dramatically forever and it's going to be great for our business, but boy, is there a lot of pressure because of what it means Yeah, there was definitely intense pressure. We talk about keeping the world connected and we felt like we really were. And you woke up and every day, then all of a sudden it was the news and it was Saturday Night Live and sporting events. Just, you know, people were doing their church. They were keeping up with their family. It was on Zoom at the end of the day. And so, you know, there was definitely a sense of commitment that we needed to make sure we gave it our all because, you know, the world needed this. Um, We needed this and not we as a business, but we were all we are all humans, too. And we're all doing this in an environment, you know, Zoom wasn't like chained to your desk, but it it was, you know, more of an office environment for the average worker at Zoom. And so all of a sudden, everybody also was just like everybody else, adjusting to being remote, working from home, getting things done, you know, figuring out new processes and ways to get things done. When I went to Zoom, one of the things I went, like, I thought it was such a big brand. And my perception now, it's like funny how you just, you break a belief barrier and then it's like, can't go back. And what I thought was a big brand then, holy cow, no. And now I know what a big brand is. Yeah. And it's great. Like you yeah. said, like being that a household name, if you know, people on the street, they saw you at the store, they thank you for what you're doing. If they see the name on your shirt, that type of thing. But it also comes with a lot of responsibility. And you see the other side of just being a big brand and how important that is and how smart you have to be. And how much that. scrutiny there is. For sure. And expectations. You said intense pressure. What is intense pressure? What did that look like? Not dropping things like people need it, you know, schools yeah. <laughs> like take education. You know, we gave away like over 125,000 schools to enable for education, but there's not like an instant button where you just turn it on and it's free for everybody. It just works. You have to help people get there. And then you have lots of folks that are using the product in different ways than maybe it was originally designed for or without going through the normal training that they might in a typical ramped environment. And so how do you do that? But again, with a workforce that's still good, but not scaled to do this. And then meanwhile, you're hiring and it's great because, you know, reserves and resources are coming, but you don't just hire, you got to hire the right people. And even hiring, it's a whirlwind. Like, you know, we've gone from a couple thousand to over 6,000 employees over that time period. And even the cycles of hiring, if you think about like when you're hiring that many people and you're doing real interview processes and you're deciding and you're bringing people on and you're onboarding them, there's kind of a, a whole lot to that too that takes a lot of managerial time and effort. You have said that you were hiring, maybe you still are, hundreds of people a quarter, hundreds, all remote, all during this time where you're hiring people in order to fulfill the demand of the business. 
that's pressure in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. You know, what's funny about it. There's certain processes that were improved by being remote. And in a weird way, hiring is one of them. When I look back, I think about like in my career, what we've typically done, like you're hiring and, you know, maybe you're a more senior level candidate or mid-level. We're going to have you come out to headquarters. Maybe you don't live in town or you're far away. And then we want someone to be there that day. Think about all that. And then all of a sudden, you know, one of the advantages of being remote or the world being almost fully remote was hiring in that for the employee, think about the flexibility. There was no like boss over behind their shoulder. They had a little bit more flexibility in some of their time. And then when you just took down the barriers of planning and scheduling and let's get online, let's meet for 30, 45 an hour. It's ironic that that's a process that if I think about things we used to do and how we do it today, a thousand percent improved by remote and tools and technology like Zoom. Probably no one's hired as many people as you have in as short of a period of time. Any consistent qualities that you have seen as shining? You know, one thing I'd say is great people bring great people. It's keeping your bar because if you hire good people, they're going to hire good people. Talent attracts talent. So that's definitely a piece. I think, you know, important, you know, and Eric's, you know, definitely been great about this, but really keeping our culture you know, making sure we need to hire, but we keep care. We keep delivering happiness for customers. What is the Zoom culture and how do you make sure you're still hiring for that? You know, would be some of those types of pieces. Any specific traits? When you look at what you did, what Kelly did, your wife, are there any qualities that you hold near and dear that you also then select for when you're doing all this hiring? passion, especially in a selling. I mean, first off, I hire for a variety of roles. Like, you know, you're hiring for solution engineering. Is it for sales? Is it for CSM? Is it for leadership roles? You know, I'm interviewing across the company for other executives. And so first you have to think about what you really need. What are the competencies for that role? When it's like in the sales environment, like especially I'm looking for just something that's so strong. And what I mean by that is it could be business acumen. It could be determination. It could be like pure intelligence, heart. Is there something extra? Not everyone has to have the ultimate business acumen or everyone has the ultimate passion. We're all ourselves and we want diversity and we want a diverse workforce. But is there just something that's extra about that person? Go back to, we're talking about competing. You throw them in a pool, they're going to swim to the other side faster than the other person. And it doesn't mean just physically, but there's just something. And then of course, you know, the more experienced, there is a track record. The reality of it is, as you start, you know, moving upstream, there is a track record and you're looking at that track record of success. Like if you haven't been successful till now and you've been doing this for a long time, sometimes there's situations, sometimes people could be lucky, could be unfortunately the other way. So you want to be smart about that. But the reality is at some point there's a track record and people will be pretty true to their track record. A lot of people will say you're lucky, best job in the world, all those things. I'm not sure you would disagree with any of those characterizations. However, when you were going through the last two years in this business, how hard was it? What I'm trying to get rid of is this negative stigma that we're not allowed to say that things that ended up good were hard. It's hard. It's been hard, of course. And it's not like you're sitting there, you know, there was a point early on where it was like quarter end and you think like, oh, you're a sales leader. Your dream must be to have quarter end every day for, you know, 20 days in a row. And then you realize, well, there's a certain intensity every day, nonstop. How do you keep up with that? People aren't built for that sometimes. And so it's always hard. In fact, we had a speaker yesterday. We were doing some kickoff stuff. Eric Weinemeyer, he's blind, went blind as a teenager, but has climbed Mount Everest. I mean, just done amazing feats. And there was something he said yesterday, and I won't say it as well as he did, but it just sticks in my mind. Success and really growth, it's not created in a sunny meadow, like a nice, bright, sunny meadow. It's really through adversity. And that's how we get there as people. And so I think he said, force through the flames of adversity versus a calm, sunny meadow. And we all like the sunny meadow. Let's be honest. It's nice to feel the sun on our back. I definitely love the sun. And But if I think about the things that have been rewarding, like you, went, you, you kind of dug in on books a little bit here, that was no sunny meadow. That was definitely forged in the flames of adversity. But it's also where I grew a lot. I learned a lot. Like, do I want to wake up and do that every day? I don't. But the reality is a lot of the things in life for us that are harder are where we learn. Those are where we grow. And that that's guy where sounds amazing. It, yeah. Was his name Eric? Yeah. Eric Weinmeyer. He's definitely amazing. He's got a book. I think it's called No Barriers, No Barriers Mindset. He's definitely an amazing individual. Maybe a future guest for the pod. He'd wow. That sounds amazing. The other question that I had is that the business in January of 2020, and look, 
Are market caps and stock prices a representation of where the business is? Generally, no. Like They're independent things. However, I have some questions around it, which is that January 2020, the stock was a $20 billion market cap. I don't know what the share price was. At its peak, the market cap was $120 billion. It went absolutely crazy. And then now it's at $40 billion. So it's off of its high by 74%. However, if you normalize that from its IPO, it's still a very, very strong performer. It's doubled in two years. And the word that you've used multiple times is belief barrier. And it's funny, the business has doubled. And by the way, I say the business has doubled. The stock price has doubled. The business has like 20X'd. Like it's literally the amount of users has 30X'd since then. I mean, there's something going on. There's a little bit of disassociation. Left hand's not talking to the right. But how do you communicate to the team this kind of belief barrier? Because now they're in their head that they should be this type, you know, this should be this price or whatever. I don't know. I just want to know how you think about it. Yeah. You know, that's a lot of even yesterday was like, you know, what it takes. Our theme is kind of winning as one and all working together and what it takes. And you want to be careful. Stocks go up, stocks go down. And if I was the perfect stock prognosticator, I probably wouldn't be doing this job. And let's be honest, it, it, you can't say, you know, it's up 3%, down 5% of this, down that, that people's emotions do get tied, you know, because sometimes some of their wealth or even how they feel. But like your point is true over the long term, it definitely does tie to the business. But in the short term, that's not always the case. It's hard for folks not to get caught up in that. But the reality especially now you look around, there's a lot happening to the market overall and just SaaS stocks in general yeah. and what's happening in pricing and valuations. And I'm old enough, I guess I'd say, like I've seen cycles. I've seen cycles that have gone up. I've seen cycles that have gone down. And I, but over time, the winners win. The good things happen to good people. And so, you know, it really depends on your horizon. And there's plenty of future and plenty of opportunity ahead for Zoom. To that point, there's a couple of things that kind of blew me away. Number one, the net retention of the business is 130%. Why is that interesting? That's interesting because before COVID, about 20% of Zoom customers had fewer than 20 employees. Now, it's almost 40% of Zoom customers have 10 or fewer employees. That net retention has stayed consistent for many, many quarters in a row. And when so much of your business is disproportionately skewed towards that end of the market, and your net retention is that high, boy, that's good. Like that is super impressive. It's definitely good. I think our public net retention metrics are for 10 plus employees, but in general, a couple of things, you know, first off, we have a great product or service, right? That people need, they like, and that's what's great about Zoom. It's not, it's one of those things that you don't just use it, but it's like you tell your friends about it because they should be using it too. And then it's not just meetings. We have Zoom phone. We've seen tremendous success. We publicly announced over 2 million users in just two and a half years, we have Zoom events, you know, there's Zoom rooms, there's a whole product catalog and even more to come of just great products and services. And so for us, it's, you know, how do you take care of our customers? And we talk about delivering happiness as a company. And it's not just, oh, this one thing on the wall, like it's real. Eric, you know, sets the tone that we're a profitable company and a highly profitable company, but it's not about like, oh, what's the profit? What are we going to make? It's like, what's the right thing to do? How do we take care of that company and what do we do? And over the long run, and he really set that tone and it kind of goes throughout and it's, I love it. Like, you know, everyone wants to be customer centric. Well, any good business I guess, wants to be customer centric and a lot of people will say it, but they don't do it. And that's the difference at Zoom is that we say it and we do it. And that's even through in it, like engineering. I mean, the way we hear requests and features and functionality from our customers and the ability to turn that around, but not just do it, but do it in an easy to use way that's scalable for other people is amazing. And that's definitely a differentiator. You think you have a fifth summer in you, in your career here? Like, do you think you're going to go back and sell one more summer of books after this? This is an honest question. Like, you think this is it? Or do you love business so much that you want more? I just want to know, like, where is your head right now having gone through these rides? We'll see over time. It's never what you think. And that's the first thing. When I think about some of the places I was in my career, even a year or two in, I'm like, oh my gosh, is this, it's different than what you expected. So you want to be careful and there's never a never. This is what I'm doing now. I'm heads down. I'm here to make this happen. I'm here to lead our team and help combine with the rest of our leadership to help drive success. I don't think of what's next. 
there'll be a day where I probably don't operate business every single day. Yeah. You wake up and you have the number <laughs> it's on your head and you know, there, there will be a day. Um, when is that day? I don't know. And honestly, even when that day comes, like I definitely have hobbies. I have things I like to do. It's funny doing this all the time. It's pretty intense. And vacations are great, but they're great because they're different. Just like a weekend sometimes, a Saturday is so great because it's different. And I've thought about it over time. Like, what if every day was Saturday? That sounds really romantic. It sounds kind of sexy. But honestly, if every day was Saturday, you also wouldn't appreciate it. And so, you know, I don't know what the right balance is. And it's hard. In my perfect life, it would probably be like four-day weeks, like where you just had a three-day weekend every week where you could truly enjoy a little bit more of that weekend, a little bit more of that freedom of mind and things like that. But I also, I like business. It's intrinsically interesting. And so I'm young enough and I will be connected in some way, somehow, and doing that and what that looks like and probably, you know, how you can do that and still have more flexibility on your schedule. And it's not like we can't create our own flexibility, but the reality is, is you, we have a commitment to a large group that, you know, does, you know, take some of your time. The minute you think you're moving to Austin, you don't move to Austin. I had Mark Anderson, the CEO of Alteryx on the show, and he was telling a story. He's like, Juven, you know, my whole life, I told myself, I can't wait to go play golf every day. And he was the president of Palo Alto Networks, had a great run. And he said, I lived in Palm Springs for a while. I'd go play golf every day. And he's like, I was so bored. It was not what I thought it would be. I missed the engagement of it, the grind of it. I missed it. And I didn't appreciate what I have now playing golf because there was nothing to juxtapose that feeling with anymore. Sounds right on. I mean, I, I you know, of all the sports, I definitely used to play golf, but I was so bad. The one thing I did pick up re- during COVID literally was pickleball. And as, as silly as it sounds, it's been so great sports. Oh, it's so fun. And a couple of things, you know, one is they redid, but the park in my neighborhood, just two blocks away, the basketball courts and they put in these pick. And literally I was like, what is this? And then me and a few dads in the neighborhood, we go, oh, you know, two rackets for $50 and a bag and some balls on Amazon. And then, you know, two months later, we're like, oh no, here's a $150 racket. Now, <laughs> like we're like, and it's been a good release and it's, it's a pretty simple sport. It's a very social, but like, you know, a lot of quick getting a slam, hit the ball towards yeah. someone, letting out yeah. some steam, but it's the same thing. I really enjoy it. It's a great release. Do I need to do that every day? Not necessarily. Yeah. The only questions I actually prepped you for, what does the word grit mean to you? It means a lot. You know, I, I think no gritty, <laughs> I think gritty people find a way to be successful. I mean, there's some people that just get by by natural talent. Um, probably the best of the best have some natural talent, acumen, intelligence, and grit. And there's a lot of people that maybe are, don't have some of those things, but just with grit, they can still do a lot. You know, one thing I think about, even in a recent quarter, one of my directs, you know, senior leader, it's at 11 o'clock on a Monday night, the quarter's ending in the U.S. 11 o'clock after an intense week of closing and still thinking about three deals that are out there because he's international leader. We got something in Israel. We got something because guess what? It's morning somewhere else, somewhere in that territory. And doing what can be done and working with the team to really do that little extra. And, you know, it's funny when I think about it, that's a recent one that just sticks in my mind. And I think it's, you know, I don't know how you teach it. I don't know how you get it, whether you just have it, whether you find it, whether you're born with it. But I do know when I see it, I really like it. Are you hiring? I assume you're hiring everywhere. We're always hiring. What are you hiring for? Maybe are there any key roles that you want to shout out for the audience that's listening? I need a chief of staff that I'm looking for right now. I'm actively interviewing for. We do need a senior sales leader. Think of an upmarket sales leader for Canada to help run the country is something. In our enterprise, we have a role in the Mid-Atlantic for a manager kind of around the Chicago region, greater. Think of that. In the West, we need a second line leader for enterprise that we're looking for to help kind of bring the general West together. Great opportunities we're also looking for like a second line leader in our EDU. We do really well across EDU, but that's focused on K through 12. So, I mean, we're always hiring. Definitely careers page on Zoom has a lot more roles than that. Is that the best way to get get a hold of you or get a hold of these jobs? What's the best for way to do this? For those core jobs, you know, maybe other than chief of staff, it's probably the best way. For other things, LinkedIn is probably always a good place. A lot of your audience probably is on there. I'm on there. Um, it's probably a good way. Ryan, thank you. Thank you. This has been fun. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, 
subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks, talk soon.